Good morning. Good to see you guys this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this space. If you haven't met, my name is Jamie, guy who gets to preach most of the time around here, and that is truly the case this morning. Super excited about the passage that we're going to be in. Uh, we're going to encounter these kind of passages along the way as we work our way through Luke's gospel account, uh, a fairly well-known book of the Bible, maybe more so, so than others. And within that fairly well-known book of the Bible are fairly well-known Bible stories that many of us have probably read a dozen times or, or more. But I think we'll see, uh, as will be the case this morning, that when you slow down into second gear and take a Sunday stroll through a book of the Bible, uh, the, things just start to jump off the page that uh, might not otherwise have jumped off of the page. And so I'm excited to dive in this morning to what will be a, a pretty well-known account in the Gospels, and yet there is a lot of buried treasure here. So let me pray for us, and, and we'll get after this thing this morning. Lord, we come in needy, weak, desperate people, more desperate than we know, or we need you. We need you to show up and show yourself strong in our weakness. Holy Spirit, we need you to move in power in this place. Otherwise, what, uh, what would typically be a means of grace, the preaching of your word, will be nothing more than an exercise in futility. So, uh, God, would you, would you move? Would you work? Would you stir our hearts? Lord, I pray that this timeless story that many of us have come across numerous times in our Christian experience would come alive for us in a way that it hasn't before, or that we would walk away with more of an understanding of what it is to experience God in our lives, and that we would truly experience you in the days to come, Lord, like Peter in a boat with Jesus, that we would know what it is to be with you, to walk with you, to follow you. God, we invite you, we plead with you, to do what only you can do in moments like these, in spaces like these. Would you do it now? In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. Luke 5, that's where we're gonna be this morning, verses one through 11. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and flip there. If you don't have one, it's all good. You'll see the passage up on the screen behind me throughout the course of our time together this morning, along with any sort of scripture references outside of Luke's gospel account, any sort of commentary quotes, etc. I'm gonna go ahead and take us back to the beginning. And by that, I don't mean the book of Genesis, though a lot of times that is exactly what I mean when I say, let's go back to the beginning. In this case, I wanna take us back to the very first verses of this book of the Bible. Luke's very first words as he opens up his gospel account, verses one through four of chapter one, Luke says this, "'Inasmuch as many have undertaken "'to compile a narrative of the things "'that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. We talked about this in week one of this series. If you were around, there were several written collections of Jesus's works and words back in Luke's day written by those who had seen Jesus with their very own eyes. Luke had not 
personally witnessed the miracles and ministry of Jesus himself, and yet he sensed the Holy Spirit leading him to put pen to paper, and so he committed himself to the careful investigation of Jesus's life, his teaching, his ministry, consulting eyewitnesses and traditions with the professionalism of an investigative journalist in an effort to as he says himself, compile an orderly, reliable account of his own concerning the things that have been accomplished or fulfilled. Meaning that Luke's writing is not simply a historical account, though it is surely that with its historical details, but more than that, it's a declaration of Jesus as the fulfillment of God's redemptive promises. As I've mentioned several times now throughout this series, Luke writes that the reader might have certainty concerning the son of man who came to seek and save the lost. A certainty of faith that going back to, I believe it was last week or the week before, that the reader must profess for himself or herself. Not good enough for demons to cry out that Jesus is the Holy One of God. We must cry that out ourselves. But more than that, Luke writes that we might follow Jesus as our Lord and God, as an outworking of that sure knowledge of who he is, which is what it means to be a disciple, right? Luke's gonna bring us face to face this morning with a story about discipleship, a story of what it means to follow Jesus. In fact, the very first disciples that Jesus would call, a story that Luke includes that we might not only see Jesus for who he truly is, the Lord's anointed having come to use that Isaiah scroll language, that we might believe on him, that we might repent of our sin and trust in him, but also that we might leave our nets, so to speak, and follow him as our Lord, as our God. Luke opens up chapter five with these words, verse one. He says, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, that is Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. The lake of Gennesaret is referred to elsewhere in scripture as the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias in John's gospel account. It's the lowest freshwater lake on planet Earth, roughly 13 miles long from north to south, about eight miles wide east to west. It's the backdrop of several of Jesus's greatest miracles, one of which we'll see in this very passage. Luke tells us that Jesus approaches that very lake presumably in the area of the seaside city of Capernaum, and a crowd presses in on him to hear the word of God. Remember, the, the people of Capernaum were astonished at Jesus's teaching, going back to verse 32 of chapter four, for Luke tells us his word possessed authority. Apparently, they couldn't get enough of the very incarnation of truth, proclaiming the truth in power. And so the crowd presses in. They're like, we wanna have church when church ain't happening, basically. And so they, they gather around, they press in on him. And Jesus sees a couple of boats as he looks out on the, the landscape of the, the scene there, but they're empty. The men who owned the boats had apparently recently finished up a fishing excursion and were cleaning and checking their gear in preparation for their next outing. And Luke tells us in verse three, that getting into one of the boats, which was Simon, Simon Peter, he, Jesus, asked him to put out a little from the land and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Right, this is not Simon Peter's first encounter with Jesus. Remember, it was his mother-in-law going back to last week who had fallen ill with a dangerous fever whom Jesus had healed with a word of rebuke, followed by a night in which God gave 
the world a taste of the heavenly age to come as Jesus turned away no man, no woman, no child in that seaside city and the healing of various diseases and casting out of many demons. And Simon Peter had seen all of that with his own eyes so that it probably comes as no surprise that he would agree to Jesus's request to transform his boat into a pulpit. And so they push out from the shore giving Jesus some room to maneuver in the midst of this crowded scene. And Jesus sits down to, to teach, as was the custom of his day, something that we've seen him do in the context of synagogue worship, going back to chapter four, verse 20. Now turning the seaside into his very own synagogue. See itself, his amplification system, carrying his voice across the water for all within earshot to hear. Verse four, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. After speaking to the crowd, Jesus tells Peter to, to take the boat out into deeper water so that they can do a little fishing, which of course surprises Peter. I mean, imagine if, if someone who's not in your field of expertise said to you, I know I don't do what you do for a living, but if you'll trust me and do what, what I say, you'll succeed in life, right? We'd all wanna punch that person in the face, wouldn't we? Who are you to tell me how to do my job well, right? Peter's the, the professional fisherman who knows that the best fishing happens at night and oftentimes close to the shore. He and his team of experts, they're the ones who had put out their nets the night before and had come away without a single fish to show for their hours of laboring. And here, Jesus the carpenter tells Peter the seasoned fisherman to put the boat out to sea in the middle of the noonday sun. Peter has every reason to say, listen, Jesus, you're welcome to use my boat to do what you do best, preach, but why don't you leave the fishing to me? Peter's probably both exhausted and discouraged at this point. He's not in it just for the enjoyment of nature like many of us when we go fishing. His business, there was no haul the day before. He knows that the likelihood of a catch here is slim. He's gonna come back with an empty net and a sunburn probably. And yet we're told he does as Jesus commands, not on the basis of what circumstantially makes sense, but rather on the basis of the authority of the one doing the speaking. The one who possessed the power to cast out demons and fevers with a word and who spoke with the resounding authority of the divine. Going back to last week, Jesus's words are incredibly jarring at times, as they should be. The question is not, will we be shaken by many of the things that Jesus says? The question is, will we trust him? Will we come under the, the authority of his lordship? Peter understands that the word of Jesus must not be ignored even if the circumstances don't make a whole lot of sense. And there's something in that for us. And so we're told Peter responds in obedience. The fisherman in this moment choosing to trust the carpenter in putting the boat out into deeper water, though as we'll see in response to the miracle that's about to happen, Peter's not fully expecting to experience what he's about to experience, which is pretty much what it is to be human, right? And Luke goes on to tell us in verse six, and, and when they had done this, 
they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Jesus, in this moment, brings about a catch of fish, the likes of which two professional fishing boats are unable to hold. All right, we're talking about boats that were roughly 27 feet long and eight feet wide. That's about the size of the stage that I'm standing on. All right, picture two of those sinking because of the weight of the massive amount of fish that have been brought in. These are boats that were equipped for the kind of catch to be expected in those waters under normal circumstances. They were the right size, typically speaking, except that these are no normal circumstances because Jesus is on the scene. This is a mighty work of the divine. Either one of two things happening here, either in the sovereign summoning of a school of fish, like the sovereign appointment of the great fish in the story of Jonah, or in Jesus miraculously knowing exactly where the fish were that day in a lake, mind you, covering 65 square miles with a maximum depth of 140 feet. In the words of one commentator, simply put, here was the Lord of fish and fishermen, the Lord of nature, the Lord of men and their daily work. To which Peter responds, Jesus, I'd, I'd love to bring you more fully into my life. What do you say we go into business together? How about, here, let's do this. You show us where to fish each day and we'll give you equity stake in the company. What do you say? Which is how a lot of people view the Christian life. A life enhancing Jesus rather than a life altering Jesus invited into our lives as long as he operates according to our terms. That's not how Peter responds. He does respond strangely though, as he begs Jesus to leave. Verse eight, when Simon Peter saw it, the miracle, he fell down at Jesus's knees saying, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Right, something changes in, in this moment for Simon Peter, who now refers to Jesus, not as master, verse five, but as Lord. As he sees something of the glory, the majesty, the holiness of Jesus Christ in this miracle having taken place out on the open sea. And, and, and let me just... We're gonna see this a lot in Luke's gospel account, these kind of moments, and really you see them throughout all of scripture. Let me say, let me, let me clarify what's not happening in this moment. What's not happening is, is the, the simple idea that Luke has now mastered the chapter of the systematic theology book on miracles, or the chapter of the systematic theology book on the authority of the divine or the power of the divine, or going back to his mother-in-law's house, having now mastered the chapter of the systematic theology book on demonology. Though that, that's certainly happening, he's understanding something of what makes up those chapters of those kind of books. But more than that, what Peter's experiencing in this moment is the very reality that those chapters of those books are trying to explain about the person of God and what it is to be in a relationship with that God and experience that God. Peter's experiencing the chapter on miracles, the chapter on divine power and authority. 
He's recently experienced the chapter on demonology. This, this past Thursday morning, I woke up about an hour and a half before my alarm was supposed to go off. And this was not a good day for that because I had about four hours of driving ahead of me round trip for uh, a monthly cohort uh, that has to do with our network that I typically attend. I just needed to be awake that day. I was meeting with someone in our church later on that evening. I needed some gas in the tank, so to speak. I woke up an hour and a half before the alarm was supposed to go off. I didn't start thinking things, but maybe you've experienced this before. My mind started to race and I knew it was about to start thinking things that were gonna keep me up for the next two hours until that alarm would officially go off and that I'd be running with less in the tank than what I was under the assumption that I would need that day. And in that moment, I paused for, for a brief second and I just quietly in my bed cried out to Jesus and I said, Lord Jesus, I know you can answer this prayer in a number of different ways, but I pray that you would show me something of the power and authority that you showed as you shared that boat with Peter in proclaiming sleep over this body for the next hour and a half. Would you do that great authoritative, powerful work in my life so that I can wake up with something in the tank tomorrow, something to give? Next thing I remember, my wife is nudging me intensely because apparently I've missed the, the alarm on my phone for the, the first several times that it went off. I look over, it's a couple minutes past when that alarm went off. Had to set the snooze button because I was coming out of such an enchantment that I needed 10 minutes to wake myself up to get out of bed for the day. Does God always answer that way? No. The Lord could have taught me a lesson in sonship and divine fatherhood by not allowing me to sleep for that last hour and a half. And there'd be a different lesson to be learned in a relationship with God, right? But in that moment, what I'm saying is I, I, I didn't wanna know more about what the systematic theology book said about divine power and sovereignty and authority. I needed to experience it like Peter in the boat because that too is part of the Christian life. Peter experiences something of the glory, majesty, and holiness of Jesus in this miracle having taken place out on the open sea, and it brings him face to face with the condition of his sinful heart, and he knows, sinner that he is, that he has no business being in the presence of Jesus. Like the experience of Job coming face to face with the majesty of God, Job 42, verses five and six. Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Or how about Isaiah 6, 5? Isaiah's experience in seeing the Lord in the fullness of his splendor and holiness seated upon the throne of heaven. Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's Simon Peter's experience. I'm devastated, I'm undone. I, a sinner, have seen something of the glory and the majesty and the holiness of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus, you have to leave. I have no business being in your presence. 
And in one sense, he's right. In that sin has no business sharing a boat with perfect holiness. Why none of us can stand in the presence of a holy God on the basis of our own merits and hope to survive that experience. Sinners that we are, no exceptions, Romans 3.23. But what Peter fails to realize in this moment is that he's not only sharing a boat with perfect holiness, but the only hope of salvation for a world of lost sinners. The last thing he needs is for Jesus to depart from him, leaving him alone in the hopelessness of his sinful condition, something that Peter would actually go on to grow to understand over the course of time so that he would someday jump from a boat, perhaps the very same boat, and swim to the resurrected Jesus full throttle after having denied him three times knowing that a sinner's only hope is to cling to Jesus, not push him away. And so I think I would be doing a great disservice in a gathering like this if I didn't ask the question, have you embraced Jesus Christ as the hope of salvation, the rescue of lost sinners? Romans 5, 8, very famous verse. Paul says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners standing in a sinking boat, Jesus Christ died for us. That yes, you're far more sinful than you ever imagined, so am I, but you're far more loved than you ever dared dream, so am I. In the face of Jesus Christ, we see it in this morning's passage, the glory of God is surely revealed, but so is the grace of God a grace that Jesus puts on full display in refusing to give Peter what he wants. He goes on to say, and Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Like Isaiah's cold to the lips, Jesus calms Peter's fears and tells him that everything is gonna be different. Revealing that the miraculous catch of fish, it it was less about the haul and more about providing Peter with something of an object lesson. But Peter's nets are gonna be filled in the years to come, but not with fish. From now on, you'll be catching men, meaning that Peter's life will be devoted to casting the net of the gospel. In the words of one commentator, that people might be rescued from the sea of their sin and brought safely to the shore of salvation. Fisher of men, as Jesus himself had just modeled in preaching to the crowds from that very boat. Something that we see in Peter's life on full display in the sequel, the book of Acts. If you were around a few years back, we went through that book of the Bible where we saw Peter casting the net of the gospel in Jerusalem, bringing a catch of thousands of souls in by God's grace. Evangelism, part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We're all called to be fishers of men. Jesus doesn't need us in order to reach more people. He could knock them off their high horse with his blinding radiant light, just like Saul of Tarsus. But it pleases him, 1 Corinthians 1.21, through the folly of what we proclaim to save those who believe. And so we cast the net in sharing the gospel with our friends, with our family members, with our neighbors, with our coworkers. We cast the net wide, trusting that God alone can bring forth the catch, so to speak, by his sovereign grace. I think one of the questions for us with a passage like this is, where are the opportunities to cast the net of the gospel? 
Surely God has brought people into our lives who desperately need to see the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. Particularly maybe that, that shifted or changed over the last year in light of circumstances having unfolded that are strange to all of us. But opportunities are always there for the church to cast the net of the gospel. Verse 11, in closing this morning's passage, Luke says, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Peter and his friends leave not only their nets behind with a gargantuan haul of fish from the catch, mind you, the pantry's full, dinner for weeks. They leave everything, their life's ambitions, the safety and security of living the way they always had, the right to call their lives their own. R.C. Sproul in his commentary on this passage says, once you hear the Holy One say to you, your sins are forgiven, come follow me, then the Spirit of God changes that rock that's in your chest that you call a heart and causes it to beat anew under the Spirit's breath. Then all you wanna do is get as close as you possibly can to Jesus and to follow him the rest of your life. That's what it means, he says, to be a Christian. It's like the man in the parable of the treasure hidden in the field, Matthew 13, who sold everything he had in his joy, not begrudgingly, in order to obtain that treasure. The treasure in the parable symbolic of Jesus and his kingdom. What Luke's doing is he's inviting us to look in the mirror and ask ourselves if we've truly decided to follow Jesus having seen like Peter and his friends something so priceless in the face of Jesus Christ that there's nothing we aren't willing to leave behind for his sake. Our selfish ambitions, our comfortable surroundings, our bitter grudges, our cherished idols. Philip Ryken in his commentary says, how foolish it is for us to pretend that we are following Jesus when in fact we want to keep our lives intact the way they are. But it is not just one part of our lives that he tells us to give over to him. He demands all of us. True discipleship, he says, is always costly because it means giving up what we want for us so that we can have what Jesus wants for us. We do this in principle, he says, as soon as we begin to follow Christ. Then we do it in practice every time something threatens to stand between us and a total commitment to Christ. Again, Luke writes so that the reader might have certainty regarding the son of man who came to seek and save the lost, a certainty of faith that the reader must profess for himself or herself. But more than that, Luke writes that we might follow Jesus Christ as our Lord and our God as an outworking of that sure knowledge of who he is. It's what it means to be a disciple. Which leaves us with a question as we close this morning, a question that I invite you to sit with even as we continue throughout the remainder of this service together. And the question is simply this. What nets, so to speak, are you still dragging around with you? What do you need to leave behind for the sake of Christ? He's worth it. We've barely gotten a taste of his worth as we're now five chapters into this incredible book of the Bible. We're just gonna continue to see all the more how much he's worth it. But we've already tasted it 
even now. At this point in the story, he's worth it. Listen, he's not worth it if he's simply a book to be dissected and mastered. If that's our Christian experience, this attempt to somehow put God on the operating table and master him subject by subject by subject, he won't be worth it. But if we go past that, including the desire to know everything we can as has been revealed to us. God wants that for us. But if we go further than that and lean into the experience of this very God revealed, an abiding intimate relationship with him, the experience of his power, the experience of his authority, the experience of all the things that Luke is gonna unfold for us in this glorious book of the Bible, if, that, if that's our Christianity, and if that's your Christianity, you know he's worth it. So I invite us to sit with that question. What am I dragging around with me? What's caught around my ankles that I can't seem to let go of, that I know I need to leave behind for the sake of Christ? In a moment, we're gonna sing to Jesus, and even that is a declaration of his lordship, that he's the rabbi. And we're the disciples. He's the one doing the leading. We're the ones doing the following. He's the one on the throne and pedestal of worship. We're the worshipers. And so even our song is a declaration of following. I invite you to join in to that song. We'll also have an opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread representing Jesus's broken body, dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. You're welcome to partake of those elements at any point during these last couple of songs. As you do, I just encourage you to come back to Romans chapter five, verse eight, that where this story is going, Luke's gospel account, it's headed toward toward a cross and empty tomb, which is the revelation of God's love and grace to us in that while we were still sinners standing in a sinking boat, Christ died for us.